0: Welcome to the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal Author Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Matthew Wappett, the DDNJ Editor-in-Chief and the Executive Director of the Utah State University Institute for Disability Research Policy of Practice, Utah's USED program. And it's my privilege to host this podcast. In fact, this podcast is one of the favorite things that I get to do because it gives me a chance to talk to so many different researchers and professionals who are out in the field making a difference. In fact, many of the people that we have on this podcast are literally changing the world in their own quiet way, and that's exciting for me. So this podcast, as many of you know, is part of our ongoing commitment at the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal to increase the accessibility of the content in the journal for a wider readership. Not everyone has time to sit down and read an entire article these days, let alone an entire issue. And more and more people are choosing to get their information through podcasts and audiobooks. In fact, I've read more audiobooks this past year than I have read physical books, which I think may be a first for me. So uh, again, this format, this audio format is becoming more and more prevalent. Um, The launch of this podcast means that you can access the journal's contents while you're on the go. And you can share it more readily across social media platforms and other online media. Uh, And we recognize that it's important to present our information in the journal through a wide range of media and outlets in the hope that it will help provide alternative access and different ways of um, getting this information out there. So with that said, the effectiveness and the reach of this podcast is dependent on you, so please be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcast. There's many platforms today, uh, and please leave us a rating and a review and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Your ratings, reviews, and shares help us share the important work that is being done in this field today. So you can learn more about the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal at the DDNJ website, which is digitalcommons.usu.edu backslash DDNJ. And you can download podcast transcripts in English and Spanish and learn more about our guests at the IDRPP website, which is rdrpp.usu.edu. And just look for Developmental Disabilities Network Journal there on the homepage. This podcast is usually an interview with authors from the latest issue of the journal, but this episode's a little different. Over the past year, we've been working with the Association of University Centers on Disabilities Multicultural Council to develop a special issue of the journal focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've been privileged to work with J.C. Farkas and Dr. Lydia Ocasio-Stoutenberg who are serving as guest editors for this upcoming special issue and we thought it would be interesting to learn a little bit more about their background and how they've been approaching this important work. We like to acknowledge that authors, and in today's episodes, the editors are more than just a name on the page and we want to help you get to know the people behind the publication. We want to help you gain a better understanding of the many diverse voices who are working in the field today. and we wanna provide some insights into what motivates the authors and editors, where they get their ideas from and why they do what they do. So today's episode, as I mentioned, will be with JC and Lydia. JC Farkas is the Assistant Director of the Sonoran Center for Excellence in Disabilities at the University of Arizona in Tucson, where she helps oversee multiple efforts related to person-centered practices, transition and information dissemination. JC has been a longtime leader within the AUCD Multicultural Council and has a reputation as an incredible collaborator and advocate. She also serves as a Leadership Institute mentor for the National Center for Cultural Competence at Georgetown University, and she has contributed to multiple projects and publications related to diversity, equity, and inclusion within the disability world. JC is currently in the process of completing her doctoral degree in Family Studies and Human Development at the University of Arizona, and she also holds a Master's in Information Resources and Library Science, and a Bachelor's in Classical Studies. Dr. Lydia Ocasio-Stoutenberg is our other guest today. Dr. Ocasio-Stoutenberg has a long history in the DD Network, and she's worked with DD Councils, with Parent-to-Parent Health Information Centers, and USEDs. She has also served in the leadership of AUCD's Multicultural Council with JC, and she was formerly a program manager for the Step Up Assistive Technology Program at the University of Miami UCEDD. She is a qualitative researcher, she's a parent of a child with a disability, and she is a community advocate for children with disabilities and their families. She received her PhD in special education from the University of Miami, and holds a master's degrees in both biology and bioethics. She is also the co-author of two books on caregiver advocacy across cultures, languages, disabilities, and other social identities. And we'll provide a link to Dr. Ocasio-Stoutenberg's books on family advocacy in the show notes for this episode. So anyway, this episode is a wide ranging conversation with JC and Lydia and it really provides some important insight into why diversity, equity, and inclusion is so important today. As with other episodes, this episode also includes some fun behind the scenes insights, some innovative ideas that also can be used to improve the work that you are doing in your respective teams and organizations. So without further ado, let's jump into this fun and informative conversation with Lydia and JC. So why don't I start with you, Lydia, if that's okay, but can you tell us a little bit about your background within the USAD network and DD-related programs?
1: So I come to the USAD um, and the DD network as a parent of a child with a disability. Um, I'm a mother of five, but my youngest uh, happens to have Down syndrome, and so um, I've been very much involved in advocacy. And I think a few years ago, just looking for some programs to support me and knowing more about him and also kind of promoting that connectivity uh, led me to a said where I got involved in a leadership development program for, for advocacy in the communities. And that was really uh, instrumental. It kind of gave me uh, what I needed, what I was looking for in terms of connecting to other people who were invested in bettering and improving the lives of people with disabilities and their families. Um, But it also led me to explore other opportunities as well. Um, So uh, again, uh, developing my leadership uh, within my center and also going on to um, become the chair of the MCC and involved in the AUCD board. Again, those have allowed me to connect with other people, um, whether it be communities of practice, and our board development and just really discussing so many things that are important to our communities out there. Um, again, important to bring that uh, family perspective and the parent perspective, but also learning from self-advocates and other leaders um, and individuals who've been invested in this process as
0: well. Yeah, great. Well, what about you, JC? How did you get into the said network and DD-related programs?
2: Honestly, it was kind of, happenstance. Uh, It was not part of my original plan. Um, I've been with the network now for more than 15 years. uh, But I, our center was just started, and I was looking for a job that would help uh, really, like help with benefits and pay tuition. I'll be honest, (laughs) that's how I came to it. I was looking for a part-time job. And uh, while I was working on my master's, I wasn't working on anything specific to disability at all. And, um, you know, I started out as an office assistant. And now 15 years later, uh, I'm the training director and our assistant director at our center. I really just, um, it opened my eyes to a lot of things that I hadn't really thought about before, even though I had extended family members and friends that might have disabilities, it just, I never looked at it as a social justice issue until I started working alongside and learning from people with disabilities and their families and um, really kind of got pulled in by information accessibility and person-centered practices. And um, it just changed my career path. And I really, a big part of that was understanding kind of how um, my own social identities and and my own family and what people go through and some of of the biases and systematic structures that can be really um, harmful for folks and their access to a better life. And so, that aligning with and understanding what that looks like for people with for, with disabilities, particularly those um, from who are at the intersection with other marginalized identities is what really pulled me into this work and why I have stayed and went back to school and everything um, in this field. So, I really felt like I did a
0: whole roundabout long thing there. <laughs> Ooh, <that's laughs> but... I, I think it's interesting because this is, it, we. I ask this question a lot, how do people get involved? And it, there's really are two ways that people get into it. Number one is either a very close personal family connection that's pulled them into the work or people stumble into it. Really, the said network, nobody really sees the said network as a career path I think more and more that's changing, but I do think, you know, it's either very intentional or it's kind of like, Oh, it was a job that was available and I've created a career out of that. I mean, and that's, um, it's just interesting to to hear that you're both coming at it from, uh, different sides, and yet both have made remarkable contributions, I think. So uh, one of the things that you've both been involved with, and one of the special things about this new upcoming special issue of the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal is the diversity, equity, and inclusion framework, and then, um, and that's being edited, guest edited, by both of you who are, uh involved with the Multicultural Council at AUCD. Share with us a little bit about the history and names of the Multicultural Council at AUCD.
2: So, you know, I've been a member with the council probably for, I don't know, over 10 years at this point, maybe. Um, but, you know, it started out originally, um, even before it became a council, it was a, a work group or committee. And the main focus was to look at just within our network, the racial and ethnic diversity and who was present, are we representing the folks we're working with? And to have, um, to not only increase that diversity, but to be really, um, you know, creating pathways and for leadership and for the concerns of folks within the network. And that has over time really evolved into um, not just within the folks who work for the network, but who we're serving, the concerns of um, um, culturally diverse and underrepresented groups in all activities across uh, our centers, the network, are we representing who we're serving in our states and to really thinking about culture and linguistic competence in how we um, provide services and engage with authentically engage with communities. Um, you know, and what's the word I'm looking for? I'm like blanking on it. But I don't know, Lydia. Do you want to jump in to um, talk about where we kind of been the last couple of years and where we are now? Yeah,
1: I think that that's really been heightened, and uh, this is where I came into the network, even though I was sort of on the periphery of the MCC and AUCD um, years prior, but I sort of came in after 2020, uh-huh. and 2020 is when our concerns are have been heightened um, because of our social experiences and systemic barriers, systemic racism, systemic ableism that people are experiencing. And so it's not that those issues and concerns are new, but our attention has been directed toward it. Um, And so it generated a different responsiveness, um, even within the network and even within the MCC, uh, thinking about what can we do now to be more responsive to our communities out there? Uh, Unfortunately, um, my background is in special education, but um, I would say this is parallel because even in special education you can see all equity with regards to education being really um, difficult and reproducing the same hierarchies and stratifications that we're trying to avoid. Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, that's what unintentionally happens in leadership, um, even with leadership and diversity. Now you would think, okay, we're, we're being equitable, right? Our aims are very clear, um, we're promoting, better outcomes, um, better lives for people with disabilities and their families, but we unfortunately are seeing so many inequities. Um, and now our attention has really been uh, purposeful and intentional on people with intellectual and developmental disabilities um, who are experiencing increased marginalizations. And as JC mentioned, um, intersectionality, so talking about racial equity with IDD. Um, Black and brown folks with IDD and what they're experiencing. And so there is a call for greater um, purposefulness and intentionality and exploring these not as sort of tangential issues, but as something that's really important and integral to our work. And how can we really be responsive, no matter where we are, whether we're working in centers that are more urban or rural, um, in our tribal communities, no matter where we are, how can we be more intentional in uh, addressing those concerns and modifying our work to be more inclusive and equitable? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, listening to both of you talk, I think you've answered the next question, which is really what role does the Multicultural Council play in promoting equity, diversity, and inclusion in the said network? Do you have anything to add to that? Though I think you kind of touched on it.
1: I probably did because I was talking a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, we've, we've always, I would say we struggle with this as a council and um, talking about, we never wanted it to be, okay, this is the MCC thing. Talking about EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion, you know, or cultural linguistic competence. That's the MCC thing. Um, and that's something we really push back because it should be the aims of the entire network. And we want it to be. We want it to be integrated throughout our centers so that everybody is thinking about equity. Everyone's thinking about diversity. Everyone's thinking about inclusion. And one of the challenges we saw there, there are so many different definitions of it. And unfortunately, we tend to be silent and sort of talking in our own, you know, different categories and and really not talking across ourselves and learning from each other. I think that's why it's been so important to include lived experience and everything that we do, um, and as I mentioned, just being more more purposeful and intentional, and making sure this isn't the MCC issue, or MCC aims, but that it really is integrated throughout our network. Yeah.
2: So I feel like part of our role is fostering that collaboration across the different um, councils, centers. Uh, SIGs, all of that. Like, how can we be supportive um, in fostering some of these collaborations as well as um, kind of amplifying some of the work folks are doing throughout the center that can highlight, you know. Um, highlight the efforts that people have been doing well and even some of the struggles so everyone can learn from that and be able to either, um, you know, hopefully take that back to their own center and incorporate into their own work.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I totally feel that, you know, although the intent hasn't been for the MCC to own this work, I do feel that over the past few years that it has become more and more central to, the mission of AUCD. And I think a big part of that is due to the fact that the MCC has grown and has really, I think, fostered a lot of these conversations that we need to have. I remember uh, I've been in the network a long time. Unfortunately, 2002 is when I I am getting old. <laughs> but, you know, I remember when Aaron Bishop came in and we started having these conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it seems to have just grown from there. And especially with AUCD launching the, the strategic work plan and sort of their the aims and the the goals and the things that we should be striving for as centers, I feel like a lot of that has really been bolstered and supported by, by the work of the MCC, um, which has been really just incredible. It's been one of the most effective sort of rollouts I think I've seen in lots of organizations because it has gone from a small side group, SIG almost, to being very much a conversation that we have across the entire network. So anyway, you both have brought this up in kind of tangentially in your other responses, but why is it so important that disability related programs be more mindful of diversity, equity and inclusion?
2: all of us live multifaceted lives and identity cultural identities. And to think that disability is completely separate from any of that um, is, I mean, you, you, if we're really trying to meet people where they are and be person-centered, you have to be mindful of, of all of those things, right? Whether it's, um, Kind of as as Lydia was mentioning earlier about kind of that intersectional perspective, but um, you know, if we're only looking at disability and not in relation to all the other facets of that individual, of that family, of that community, how can we really achieve equity or inclusion? You know, if you're not paying attention to any of that.
1: And to follow up on that. I, I think we're all consumers of our media and what we're taking in um, and just understanding where we are in terms of how, where we're situated in time and history and context. And certainly we run the risk of really overstating how much progress we've made if we're not really keeping cognizant of how we need to keep moving toward equity. And instead of saying it's a place, it's a location, it's, it's an action. Right, it's something we need to keep the momentum toward. Um, you know, we can certainly celebrate our victories. I mean, we've been really victorious in terms of legislation. Um, I think we can celebrate those accomplishments. Um, we certainly have a lot of uh, diverse leaders, much more than there were before. But I think we need to keep the momentum going. Um, I, I, I talked about this um, some years ago as being part of an advocacy group Um, and the the leader was talking about um, for the parents and self-advocates to go and speak to local law enforcement so that the law enforcement officers would understand people with disabilities. One of the questions I had which really stung with me, I was just really digesting that really in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and Philando Castile, and it was really sitting with me. And I thought about, you know, where's the understanding of the actions and the responsiveness that we need to have as people of color. And it really struck me that that wasn't part of the conversation within the disability conversation. Mm -hmm. So again, speaking of how we need to not be so siloed, but be having intentional conversations, cross-cultural conversations, Um, intentional around issues of social justice it's not just some folks problem it's all of our problems it affects all of our communities. Yep
0: no I yeah I totally agree so what are what are some of the big challenges that disability related programs face when they're seeking to address DEI I mean we've talked about it something that you know, really affects all of us. But there are there are some, I think, key reasons as to why we're still struggling, I think, to um, do this well, especially within um, service-related programs and things like that. So anyway, from your perspective, what are some big challenges that we face in the disability world when it comes to addressing DEI?
1: I think there are multi-level challenges. I think there are systemic challenges. I think there are organizational challenges and I think there are interpersonal challenges. Um, systemic challenges, meaning what are our ways of knowing? How do we value ways of knowing? You know, if it tends to focus on conventional ways or traditional ways of research rather than really having uh, people with disabilities and people with intersectional identities being a part of the research team. I think it really compromises our ways of knowing and our ways of understanding. Um, And an organizational level, sometimes we check boxes, right? Without really being inclusive, without really saying, you know, is this equitable in the ways that it should be? Is the participation of our communities in ways that are meaningful to them, right? And not just for the purposes of our research or our funders. Uh, even acknowledging that we do have uh, funding responsibilities. But I think even on the personal level, um, it's a challenge to say, I need to do better. I hold some biases. I hold some assumptions that are negative about this population. And I don't want to admit that because that makes me look bad or that makes me look like I'm a poor leader. But I think you can't grow if you're not reflecting and acknowledging where you need to create space for others, where you need to come into community with people and give them an opportunity to lead, or step down and acknowledge those power differentials and say, you know what, I need to have the community step forward and me step back. So I think those are some of the barriers and challenges when we talk about DEI, in addition to not really having a really good idea of a definition of it. And we've been working on that, but I think just those multi-level challenges um, are still some of the barriers that exist.
2: Yeah. Well, and to piggyback on what Lydia shared, um, you know, I feel like because they're, I mean, DEI has become such a buzz, you know, where it's used everywhere now, right? And there's committees everywhere, And whether or not that may actually include disability, if it's not a disability organization is one issue. So that kind of further silos some of that. Um, But even within some of like the funding structures, you know, there's a focus on that, but then the aims or the expectations don't really allow or make space for the time it really takes to authentically engage communities Um, or, you know, understanding of how, um, or just even, yeah, I, I mean, a big piece of it is the time, but I think even then the allocation of funds of who gets it and and the expectation to try to share that with others and the communities you're working with and um, whether it's the funder or your or your university being the big barrier to that, to make it really difficult to, compensate people, you know, for their time and efforts in, in a meaningful and equitable way can be huge barriers. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of some of the examples that, you know, in our own organization that we've, we've run up against, you know, when we're wanting to partner with um, either tribal communities who are sovereign nations and the time it takes and the processes that are involved with um, you know, building not only the relationship, but then all of the um, kind of IRB or contract level types of things that need to happen is not always accounted for in the timing for things and um, or just the complexities of that. And so even when I think a lot of our centers have really great intention and want to do it. There are, there are barriers from the larger institutions and even funders that can really make that difficult to do it the way we really should in working with communities and individuals.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and who's gonna, just building on what you said, JC, I mean, you said it perfectly, who's going to take the wing? Who's gonna take the weight? Who's gonna bear the responsibility? Is it the responsibility of the person of color? Mm -hmm. Is it a shared responsibility? Who's responsibility for knowing? Who decides what is evidence-based practice or something that we should learn about? Who makes those decisions? And then what happens after you get that information? What are you gonna do with it? So I think there's so many challenges in implementation. but also giving someone the authority to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the knowledge, um, it's it's a competency. And I think establishing it as a competency and not just a, a fun thing to do or a check off or something we say that we did, but really giving it the power and the credibility. I think that's important too.
0: Yeah. Well, and you both brought up that notion of the time that it takes to do this work. Um, especially where a power differential, it takes a long time to build relationships of trust in general, but to do that when there's an existing power differential, right, and you're working with marginalized groups or groups that have historically not had a voice, it takes even longer than, you know, developing regular relationships. And it's an investment. Um, And a lot of times, yeah, I think, especially recently, I felt like, There's an expectation, okay, you're just going to write in DEI work and you're going to do it. And, you know, not acknowledging that this sometimes, especially with certain populations here in the rural West where I work, but I'm sure in other parts of the country too, that can take years to build those relationships to actually effectively um, address and include folks who have historically been excluded from a lot of the programs that we do. Um, So no, I appreciate both of what you've said. That's, yeah, those are just an incredible insight. So what are are the exciting things? Um, I'm really excited about this upcoming special issue of the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, And I'm just thrilled to have both of you as guest editors and for your efforts in helping us pull this together. What are your hopes and aims for this upcoming special issue? focused on DEI.
1: And one of the things for me that I love about this particular issue is just the range of different types of manuscripts and publications that I've just been reviewing so far. I mean, it really goes in line with what we're saying. It's just amplifying voices and different ways of knowing and learning from one another. I think we've stayed true to that. Um, and, And we keep staying true to that, that it's not one type of publication or article or report but there there are lived experiences included there. Um, And some are very, very detailed, you know, some are very, um, just invoking some of that personal narrative and family stories, I mean, I think it's just just powerful. I'm excited for um, what it can contribute to the literature on, as I said, just ways of knowing and ways of really looking at DEI, not just as, you know, a buzzword or framework, but really seeing it uh, into practice, what does that look like across the nation amongst different communities and centers?
0: So you've both touched on this a little bit, but these are questions that we ask all our guests because I do think it's interesting to get to the root of why working in disabilities is not an easy field, it's not a logical career choice for many folks. So. What motivates you to do this work? Why do you do what you do, JC?
2: Well, I, I, I mean, I touched on this earlier, but uh, for me, you know, like I said, it wasn't part of my original plan, but um, career plan. Uh, but it really is to me about equity and social justice and how can, uh, I see it as how can I, as myself, how, what role can I play? in, even though maybe small, (laughs) um, in moving that needle. And, you know, I, for me, I really work closely around youth to adult transition and um, wanting to make sure that the intersectional piece to that is really um, considered whether that's disability and and race and ethnicity, um, different social status. I, especially youth in foster care who have disabilities and what what that looks like, and ensuring that folks have access to live the lives they want. Basically, like how can like how can um, what part in that can I do? Um, is why I have stayed in this work. I've learned so much from, from other people and I continue to learn and um, I get excited about working closely with people in the community and helping to, um, I feel like we've been saying this word a lot, but <laughs> amplify their voices, really trying to, to where, I don't like, I, I'm, I'm okay, whether we use this or not, I'm saying I struggle sometimes with doing this type of stuff, because I don't like to be necessarily in the front, the one speaking the limelight, I struggle with that, especially um, not necessarily identifying as someone with a lived experience of disability. And so I really am trying with my own personal work is trying to really hand that over and give that to other folks and lifting their voices and being there as a support. So um, to help communities make the change that they want and the needs that they want addressed, so.
0: That's so, what you said, I think is so incredibly powerful. It's antithetical to what most people are looking at in a career. In a career, you're looking to elevate yourself. And yet what you said is all about trying to figure out how do you, elevate and amplify others voices while you step back and that's so different than the way that many people approach their professional lives. So I, I respect you. I, I really genuinely respect your approach and your, yeah, just the way that you articulated that. Thank you.
1: Echoing that much respect to JC, for what she just said, I mean, that's really talking about intentionality. You know, disrupting the status quo and saying, you know, let me let me fall back and amplify the voices of of people who've been marginalized so much and in research and practice and policy. Um, And I think that she hit the nail on the head, Um, regardless of how any of us come into this or what role we play. I think we all have an opportunity to uh, make a change um, and also be transformed in the process. Um, for some of us, it may be a personal lived experience. For others, it may be you know, working in the background to make sure that community voices are included. Um, regardless, I mean, we all have a role that we play. Um, but you know, as the saying goes, you know, to, to what each is given, much is expected, right? So much is expected of us with what we're given. And so we have to think about our role and you know, the gifts that we're giving, how we're gonna use them, you know, yeah. where we're gonna use them for. Yeah. Um, I remember when my, my son was born, um, my mother-in-law said to me, she said, you know, God knows who to give this child to, you know, and I thought about that for a minute, I said, what does she mean by that, you know, again, the, the elder wisdom, but thinking about that is like, why why are you the mother of this child, why are you a sibling, a family member, why do you work here, you know, even if you're brought here for a job, why are you here, to explore your positionality, what does that call you to do? Um, and I think each of us has a calling. How we choose to respond is, is, is our choice, but I think we all have something
2: to contribute here.
0: Thank you. Thank you both. I want to end right there, but I think that's a really powerful way to end. But I do want to ask this last question because it is something that we try to do is bring things back to the practical And again, it's a chance for people to share the different ways that they are really, again, addressing that intentionality, trying to intentionally make their work more inclusive and accessible. So we'll start with you, Lydia. What's one thing that you've been doing to make your work more inclusive and accessible?
1: I think one thing I've been doing is, um, you know, I tend to to write a lot. I'm a, I'm a writer by nature. I'm not necessarily a researcher by nature. I like to write poetry. I like to write prose. I like to write short stories. That's always been my, my thing. Um, and so when I came into research world, you know, it was like, okay, you got to stop writing like that, Lydia, you know, stop writing so creatively and stop being so poetic. Um, you know, I had to learn the rigor of the structure. But I think I've been bringing back a lot of myself. Um, and setting myself free in that sense. And I think a lot of people have responded to that well, is just that freedom of writing and letting it be more accessible, more digestible, more real. Um, And I think people can relate to that uh, much better. And and it sort of builds community, right? Because people feel like they're part of the journey with you. And it's not just so that you're in the ivory tower removed. It it, uh, for me that that's something I want to be more purposeful about, and so again, from my research to my writing to working with communities and not just writing about them has really been central to me.
0: Yeah, well, and we should note that you do have a couple of really incredible books on family advocacy out there that are worth checking out. Um, We introduced your books to some folks here in Utah this past year, and I know gotten a lot of really positive feedback on your perspective and the way that you've you've approached these issues through your writing so so thank you for that you have done some incredible writing and some incredible work
1: thank you
0: yeah so jc um what is one thing you've been doing to make your work more inclusive and accessible
2: i have uh really been intentional intentional in um how I'm forming my teams and including from uh, like for different projects in terms of not only the staff but even trainees who are brought in and um, and folks with lived experiences and making sure everyone is getting paid for, for all of their contribution has been a big piece and so I really try to bring that to all of my projects and work, and that diverse perspectives um, are not only welcomed but really centered in in my projects. And so, whether you're a trainee, uh, you're a community member um, who's a family member or a staff member, and more and and especially um, someone with lived experience and disability, like everyone at the table is contributing um, to the full possible extent and valued is what I try to make happen in all of my projects. And so, and I try to model that for for everyone on my team and others at our center and, you know, I, and making sure to bring it up when another project is coming for anyone else. Mm -hmm. Oh, have you considered this? Or, you know, and I will say our, as a whole, I feel like our center has been doing um, a really good job of being intentional of how we're including um, folks at, with lived experience in the staff, as well as from the community in our projects at different levels. And so, um, and in, you know, and I think one of the other things too is, you um, Really trying to branch out from the usual suspects and what's kind of the disability space, and um, going out to other groups and reaching out to other folks that may not always think about disability from various communities, but you know, how can we work together? Uh, we value their perspectives and want to bring them in and ask for us to join them. And uh, that's kind of been. Uh, something that I think has been really great, um, because if we're going back to what we talked about earlier, that it's it's all of us, right? So if you are going to work with certain communities, it's um, talking to other advocacy groups or organizations that don't think of, necessarily think about disability and bring joining together. And so I think that's been another intentional piece to Um, my work and our center's
0: work. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's so, so important. I think we've learned with disability, they're not going to always come find us. And so it's imperative on us as disability advocates and professionals and self-advocates and family members to go out and to say, look, we're here too. Well, um, I think that those are all the questions that I had. Any last thoughts, anything you wanted to say that we didn't get to?
1: I just wanted to highlight what JC just said um, about making sure that we are speaking. um, I don't want to always use a table example across the table, but across our communities, across our families, you know, that we're acknowledging that there are existing power differentials that have really been historically entrenched. And sometimes we keep repeating that unintentionally, right? with who we include in our research or, or who we invite to be speakers sometimes in our presentations, but also including um, making sure that we include voices that not necessarily will be included in other platforms and lifting them up. And I think that's important too. And as she mentioned, you know, making sure that everyone uh, is a partner and a valued partner and gets paid, <laughs> compensated for their contributions. So I think we, even with the best of intentions, sometimes we still go back to these silos. We start to compartmentalize and instead of really the benefit of collaboration and working together because we all are uh, interdependent. I think that's what we need to remember.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanna thank you both for just taking time to have this conversation. Um, I think this has been probably the best interview we've had. And Alex has been on all of them. But I mean, this has been just incredible. I appreciate your candor and just the way that you've addressed these issues. And I'm, yeah, I'm just, it, it has been a real privilege to work with both of you through this process. So thank you both for what you're doing and what you're going to continue to do and for, yeah, just collaborating with us um, on this, on this effort. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Matt, for
0: Thank us. you, Matt. Yeah. So that's it for our conversation today. I'd like to thank DDNJ Managing Editor and Author Insight Podcast Producer, Alex Shewall, for her hard work to get this podcast out. Alex has recently taken on the role of Managing Editor, and we're excited to have her more integrally involved with DDNJ. We'd also like to thank the USU Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice for their financial and in-kind support for this podcast and the journal. The journal also received support from the Utah State University Libraries and Digital Commons, and we are grateful for their ongoing efforts. As I mentioned earlier, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review, and please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Your ratings, reviews, and shares help us get this important information out. You can learn more about DDNJ at the DDNJ website, which is uh, digitalcommons.usu.edu DDNJ. And again, thanks so much for all you do. Keep up the good work. You're making a difference. We want you to know that what you do matters. Cheers.